Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed how hard we work at getting other people's approval? People have an instinctive desire within them to have others look at them favorably. A child wants the approval of his or her parents. Most people are quite concerned about what their friends might think of them. An employee will work hard to gain his, his employer's appreciation. There's times when we'll go to incredible lengths to get the affirmation of others. We'll give in to peer pressure. We'll do what others think is cool just to fit in. We devote time, we give presents, we do whatever it, we think it takes to get someone we respect to admire us or to accept us. Well, in the same way, people have an instinctive desire for the approval of God. God made us into religious beings. We were made to worship. Every single group of people on this earth is religious in some way. Either consciously or subconsciously, every human being is seeking the approval of God. God has put eternity into people's hearts. But people often get diverted from worshiping Him. Many people serve created things rather than the Creator. And the fact that we make various things into gods shows our religious nature, our need to worship. At root, we are dependent beings who seek validation or acceptance or approval from God. The central question every religion in this world is attempting to answer is, how do we find God's approval? How do we come into a right relationship with God? Buddhism teaches the need to follow an eight-step pathway to reach nirvana, a state of bliss. Islam has developed Sierra law, a fixed code of behavior all Muslims are to follow. Judaism teaches the need to live according to the law of Moses. Roman Catholics believe that through prayer and good deeds they can contribute to their salvation. The thing that all these religions have in common is that they are all duty religions. You must do such and such. You must live in this and that way in order to be saved. Yet, beloved, the Christian faith is different. No matter how hard we try, we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God again. Any attempt to earn God's approval by good works is an attack on the gospel of grace. The Bible points us to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It points to the wondrous redemption that Christ has earned for all those who believe in Him. It teaches us to find God's approval not in what we do, but in what Christ has done for us. We can make Christ and all his blessings are owned by faith 
alone. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone. To be declared righteous, we need to have a broken and contrite heart, to share in God's grace in Jesus Christ, to make this our own by true faith. In our catechism preaching, we've spent the past months discussing the 12 articles of the Christian faith, also known as the Apostles' Creed. We learned about God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Lord's Day 23 sums it all up by asking, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? Is there any benefit to knowing God? What does your faith do for you? Our catechism answers this question in a simple but profound way. It says, In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. In other words, there is great benefit to knowing God and to believing what He teaches in His Word. Believing in the good news of salvation has a great effect. By faith, we are made right with God. We're restored to fellowship with Him. The result is that we have life, not just now, but also eternally. We may share in the joy of belonging to Christ and of confidence that our life with God will continue into eternity. Our catechism goes on to ask another question, a key question, a question that starts, that stands at the heart of the Reformed faith. It asks, how are you righteous before God? By nature, we're all sinful people. In our thoughts and attitudes, our words and deeds, we sin against God all the time. Through our sins, we incur guilt. When you do something wrong, you deserve to be punished for it. And so in and of ourselves, we are not right with God. What our catechism is asking is, how can we be made right with God? What is required for us to be restored in the right relationship with Him? How can we escape His wrath against our sins and be restored to His favor? That's what we hope to focus on this afternoon. One of the greatest obstacles to people being declared righteous by God is that they think that they don't need this. Many people in the world are not conscious of the fact that they are sinners. They think that in and of themselves they're pretty good people. All people will admit that they've done some things that they're not proud of, things that they'd rather not have repeated in public. But no one's perfect, you know. Besides that, they consider that if you evaluate the whole of their life, they've done more good than bad. And so, because they do not recognize their sins, they don't see a need to be saved from them either. This type of thinking is not limited to the people of this world. God's own people often thought the same thing. 
We see this from our scripture reading. We read from Luke 7 about how Jesus went to Simon the Pharisee's house to share a meal with him. While he was reclining at table, a woman who had lived a sinful life came in. She stood behind Jesus weeping and wet wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured fragrant oil on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to dinner saw all this, he was indignant. He thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Our Lord knew Simon's thoughts. He tells Simon a story to explain to him the difference between him and this sinful woman. Jesus speaks about a moneylender who had two people who owed him a debt. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When he had nothing with which to repay, he canceled the debts of both. Then Jesus asked Simon a question. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus told him he had answered correctly. And then on the basis of this story, Jesus contrasts the difference between Simon and this sinful woman. Jesus points out that while Simon had not even provided water for him to wash his feet, the sinful woman has washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. While Simon gave him no kiss, this woman had not stopped kissing his feet since the time she came into the house. Simon did not put oil on Jesus' head, but the woman poured fragrant oil on his feet. The bottom line is is that while Simon wasn't much of a host to the Lord Jesus, this woman that he looks down on has shown forth her love for Jesus in a special way. The question is, why? Jesus explains, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The difference between the Pharisee Simon and the sinful woman are that he did not acknowledge he was a sinner, while she clearly did. It's true that Simon had not sinned as much as the woman had. Her debt was far greater than his. But at least she realized it. She went looking for someone to save her from her sins. Simon's problem was that he thought he was righteous in himself. Thus he did not look somewhere else for salvation from his sins. At one time, Paul formerly known as Saul, was also a Pharisee. He had the same attitude as Simon. He thought that he could earn his own righteousness before God. Paul explains why for much of his life he had put his confidence in his own flesh. He details his reasons for such confidence in Philippians 3. He explains he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Paul thought he could live according to the law of God. And because of his zeal for God and because of his obedience to the law, he was righteous before God. Both Simon and Paul needed to be humbled. Jesus worked in both of their lives. In Simon's life, he pointed out that despite his best works, he was still a debtor. He still owed the moneylender 50 denarii. At the end of his story, Jesus forgave the woman her sins, but he did not forgive Simon. The woman grieved over her sins. She had a humble and a contrite heart, but Simon did not. He still had to come to terms with the fact that he was a sinner. The fact that Jesus did not forgive Simon was a quiet rebuke. Simon needed to humble himself and confess his sins before he, too, could be forgiven. Paul, too, was at one time an arrogant man. He thought that by his own good works he could merit his salvation. His whole life was devoted to keeping the law. His zeal for God was so great that when the Christian faith was established, Paul was involved in trying to stamp out all those people who followed Jesus. He was there at Stephen's stoning. He uttered murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any Christians there, he could arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. Yet along the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul. A bright light shone from heaven, flashing around him, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was struck with blindness for three days. During that time, the Lord humbled him. He convicted him of his sins. He turned his heart so that he became a follower of Jesus. And then Jesus appointed him to serve as apostle to the Gentiles. Through the incident on the road to Damascus, Paul's life was turned upside down. He came to the realization he was not the perfect man that he thought he was. It led him to confess his sins. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Paul calls himself the worst of all sinners. In Romans 7, Paul speaks about his ongoing battle with sin. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Each of us, beloved, needs to come to the point in life where we recognize that we too are sinful people. To help us do that, God has given us a conscience. It is a self-observing, self-judging capacity that enables us to evaluate our actions, our words, our thoughts, and our feelings. It's like an inner voice that speaks up, telling us, the difference between right and wrong. 
can also accuse us when we have done wrong, giving us an uncomfortable, a guilty feeling. Please understand that our conscience is not a perfect guide. Often it's shaped by the society in which we live. It may not speak out against sins that society deems to be a normal way of life. Our conscience is only reliable to the extent that it is molded and shaped by God's Word and Spirit. At times it's also possible for us to put our conscience to sleep. We push away that nagging thought that what we're doing is wrong. We try to silence the inner voice so we can keep doing the things we want to do instead of obeying God's holy commands. If we repeatedly sin in a specific way, it's possible for us to sear our conscience. By stifling its warnings, we can reach the point where our conscience no longer bothers us. Beloved, may we never silence our conscience. If we want to experience life with God, to live in a close relationship with Him, we need to learn to recognize our sins and to repent from them. We need to do away with all self-righteousness, thinking we're pretty good people, or that we can make up for our sinful deeds through our own efforts. Personally, each one of us needs to admit, I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Beloved, before we can be declared righteous before God, we need to have a broken and a contrite heart. Like David, we need to learn to confess, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like Paul, we need to recognize that despite our best efforts, we do not do the good we want to do, but the evil that we don't want to do. It's only with a humble and contrite heart that we can ever receive God's grace. We deal with that in our second point. We'll see that to be declared righteous, we need to share in God's grace in Jesus Christ. The basic question that faces us is, how can things be made right between God and us? As sinful people, how can we be restored to God's favor? These questions bring us to the heart of the Reformed faith. Our catechism teaches us that it is in Christ that we're made righteous before God. The righteousness that I have before God is not my own. It's not something I've earned, that I've accomplished through my good deeds. It's a gift of grace. To understand how we are justified, how we're declared righteous before God, we can use the example of a courtroom. A courtroom has a number of central participants, a judge, the accused, and a defense lawyer. 
The accused has to appear before the judge because he's been charged with some crime. The defense attorney argues his case, trying to get him off the hook. And in the end, the judge renders a verdict, either guilty or not guilty. The result is that the accused person is either punished for his crime or else he's set free. The reason that all this applies to us is that we will all have to appear before the judge of heaven and earth. We'll appear as people who have been charged with wrongdoing. We're charged with an innumerable number of transgressions and shortcomings. Yet, beloved, we don't have to appear before God on our own. A defense lawyer represents us. He pleads our cause for us. He doesn't plead that we've never done wrong things, but rather that they've been paid for in his blood. As a result of Christ's mediation, God declares us not guilty of our sins. And thus we see what justification is. It is to be declared righteous before the throne of God. What we need to hear is that the judge of heaven and earth declares us not guilty of all our sins and shortcomings. How could that ever happen? Beloved, God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone. Paul writes in Romans 3 that a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. He says we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul declares, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's only by God's grace in Christ that we are declared righteous before God. You see, beloved, Christ has accomplished our salvation for us. He came into this world as a sinless person. He lived a perfect life. He presented himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus went the way of the cross, rejected by man, suffering great agony and shame. By doing so, Christ bore God's wrath against all our sins. With his body and blood, he paid the price for our sins so that God could declare us righteous and holy in him. Our catechism gives us such a rich perspective on who we are in Christ. It says that God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes, that means grants to me, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Know carefully that God credits us with the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. In other words, Christ's payment is mine. Christ's righteousness, His uprightness, is mine. 
Christ's holiness, his sinlessness is mine. How's that possible? Our catechism explains God grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. The point, beloved, is this. God looks at us through the blood of Christ. Our salvation is by grace alone. It's a gift given to us because of what Christ has done for us. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. From Luke 7, we read the story about the sinful woman who came to Jesus while he was reclining at supper in Simon's house. She had a humble and contrite heart. Through her actions, she showed that she depended on Christ and on God's grace in him for her salvation. The Lord Jesus did not disappoint her. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Many did not yet understand that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God to redeem us from our sins. But the sinful woman knew, and she went home justified. Like the woman who visited Jesus at Simon's house, we need to seek our righteousness in Christ alone. There's only one question that remains. How can we share in God's grace in Jesus Christ? We deal with this in our final point, and we'll see how we need to make this our own by true faith. The Bible makes it clear that not all people are saved. There are many who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are many who, having heard the good news of salvation, reject it. There are many who think they need to earn their own salvation, or at least contribute towards it. How can we make God's grace in Christ our own? Only by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Our justification is by faith alone. Jesus made this clear to the woman who came to see him at Simon's house. Seeing her humble and contrite heart, Jesus forgave her sins. He said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman believed that Jesus was Messiah sent from God. She considered him able to restore her in the right relationship with God by atoning for her sins. It's because she believed that she was restored to communion with God. Jesus indicates that with the words, go in peace. Peace comes from being reconciled with God. It is the result when God is no longer angry with you because of your sins. 
It comes when we're declared righteous through Christ alone. In his life, the Apostle Paul also came to the realization that the only way that we can share in God's righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ. This becomes one of the central points that Paul communicates in his letters to the churches. In Romans 1.17, Paul says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans 3.28, he concludes, For behold, that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. As we see that faith is the means by which we may share in Christ and in His righteousness. Beloved, every week you hear the glad tidings of salvation proclaimed to you. You know the basic gospel message that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to pay for your sins, and that He rose from the dead so that you could share in the new life that He gives. The question is, do you believe this? Do you come before God with a humble and contrite heart, confessing your sins and acknowledging your guilt? Do you seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Knowing the message of salvation will not save you. You need to believe it. To be convinced that it is by Christ, by Christ alone, that God will declare you righteous before Him. There's only one way to be saved. When God declares us sinful people righteous through Christ alone. And that, beloved, is a liberating experience. For when we share in God's grace by faith, we're set free from the bondage of sin and guilt. We began the sermon by speaking about how we often work hard to try to get someone else's approval. We saw how many in this world, and even in Christ's church, try to get God's approval through their own human efforts. Yet there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Only Jesus Christ can atone for our sins. When He does, He gives us peace. He restores us to fellowship with God. Beloved, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Be assured that through Christ's saving work, you have been made right with God. That you can go forth in this new week, experiencing the peace that comes from God alone. Amen.